Welcome to Unspoken, Unsung, the podcast that celebrates the lives and legacies of people we may pass in the street every day, unaware of their extraordinary experiences and accomplishments. These are stories that offer inspiration and hope. It's a celebration of their lives and of humanity itself. printed in the Los Angeles Times on November 3rd, 2005, was sadly not unusual. A 29-year-old man had been shot and was taken to the hospital, fighting for his life. It's where that all-too-ordinary news story ends that something extraordinary begins. Restricted by the constraints the pandemic has placed upon us, I haven't yet met Eric Hinks face to face, but even with the limitations of Zoom conversation, it's clear to me that this is a good man. Personable, kind, and responsible. But there's more to it than that. There's an extraordinary generosity of spirit that allowed Eric to forgive and to start an ongoing dialogue with the man who nearly killed him. Here's my conversation with Eric Hinks. Eric Hinks, welcome to Unspoken Unsung. Thank you. So yours is an extraordinary story of the power of forgiveness, but um, really before we explore the event you endured and its aftermath, let's explore your life before that fateful day. How would you describe your childhood? Uh, my child was active, very active. Uh, uh, like, I guess, any any other child, you know, little league. And then I was Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts. Um, I tried my hand in many sports, didn't much care for them. Uh, I tried cross country. I don't like to run. I learned that real fast. <laughs> uh, I tried golf, but uh, they told me a score of 120 was not good. So <laughs> Really? That uh, kind of uh, went to the wayside. Uh, yeah, normal, normal kid stuff, I would think. Uh, skateboarding, bicycling, run around the neighborhood. I guess uh, Generation X. We were home by the when the street lamps came on. We had to be home. Uh huh. Now, yeah, not so much. Yeah. Who were your, who were your heroes when you were a little guy? Uh, my hero growing up would probably be my dad. He adopted me when I was six years old, so he was the one I looked up to for everything. Hmm, that's great. And what were your childhood dreams of what you would do when you grew up? Well, I think like anybody else, I, I dreamt to uh, do a lot of things. Mainly, I wanted to be a, uh, a lawyer, or I wanted to go into law enforcement. Hmm. So you enlisted in the Army in 95? I did. You were, what, you were 20 years old then? No, I actually, I uh, enlist, I signed the paperwork in December of 94. I left April because uh, they call it the delayed entry program. I had to wait for a ship date. I left at uh, 18 years old, a month before I turned 19. Wow. So was it your intent to make that a career? Uh, yes. In the beginning it was. Yeah. So eight years in the Army, a year in the National Guard? Uh, so I did, 
uh, nine years in the army and well nine and a half in the army and a year in the national guard uh-huh was that like reserve duty post discharge reserve duty right so my active duty was uh from 95 to 99 and then i went reservist i was reserved until 04 and then in 04 uh well latter part of 03 beginning of 04 and then i went to the national guard I signed on with them in what was it, October of 04. And then uh, in October, well, October 16th of 05, I was transferring over to the Air Force. I said, okay, the Army was fun, but it's time to move on and try something new. And uh, I ETSed out of the Army and went was waiting for my waiver to go Air Force, the 30-day waiver period. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of all that, I got shot. So technically, I spent ten and a half years in the military, and the last nine and a half never happened. So your your timing did did you uh, did you deploy to Iraq or Afghanistan during your, uh, your your time in the army? No, I was blessed on that accord. Uh, by the time those guys came around, uh, I was already in a different role. Mm-hmm. So uh, example in. Uh, 97, I went to Bosnia in 90, the end of 95, I went to Korea on a, uh, they call it full eagle. So team spirit basically. Then, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. And then by the time I got into the reserve component, it was a lot of training. So I changed my job class. So I became logistics, uh, basically a truck driver for the army. Uh, volunteered for a lot of different positions. Uh, by the time my training was done, 9-11 hit. When 9-11 hit, I had a really uh, whole new outlook on life. Yeah, yeah. You started a family while you were in the military. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you were about to be deployed to Iraq in 2005 when your wife gave birth to your twins. But there were medical issues that deferred your deployment when your twins were born early. How right. how could you describe how that changed your life? Well, with the twins coming in in '05, it uh, uh, it made me relook at things. Right, I, I couldn't be gone for the pending thirteen to eighteen months. I needed to be home. I uh, didn't mind a deployment, but I had to start looking for a way to serve and not be gone 18 months in a row. Yeah. And that was the reason or the push to go for the Air Force. So mm-hmm. I was going to actually go to the Air National Guard unit. It would be out in March Air Force Base here in California. And uh, I would have been, they called it uh, Special Security Forces. It was, I was looking forward to it, but it didn't happen. So, and you've done a significant amount of college coursework focused on national security and anti-terrorism, haven't you? I have a degree in Homeland Security Emergency Management. Was it your plan to work your way through your degree and then seek a career with Homeland Security? It was. Yeah. So, you got your real estate license, and on November 1st, if I recall, you were making your first round of introductory neighborhood calls when things went really horribly wrong. Tell us about that day. So, I can walk you through the day. Uh, we got the notification, or my license in the mail day before. Um, I was excited. And then I started planning to go out door knocking the next day, which was November 1st. Uh, I got up that morning. Uh, 
went over to uh, I think I was getting cleared medically for a uh, uh, logistics position I was doing in the civilian sector mm-hmm. and then left there came home had lunch with my wife and uh, she told me and then you'll pick up uh, or drop off some Christmas wreaths my wife used to do a lot of crafts mm. so I was gonna drop those off at my aunt's house I said that's perfect great neighborhood out in Diamond Bar so I went out there to go deliver the wreath my aunt and my uncle weren't home at the time, so I thought, well, no time wasted. So I started not walking the neighborhood and passing out my cards and talking to neighbors. Uh, so about 6.30 in the evening, I was done, and my brother lived in the area. I thought, well, I'm going to go walk to my brother's house, just you know, two streets over. And uh, I saw a house that looked like possibly a rental. So I thought, well, maybe I can help somebody who's renting a house buy a house. You know, you got to figure 05, a lot of things are booming. Yeah, uh, I went to the door and nobody answered the door. And when I turned around to leave, uh, there was somebody, I guess, right behind me. I didn't see him till after the fact, but he shot me as I was turning to leave. Uh, he had snuck up behind me, so he kind of hit me in my front side with a uh, uh, double-up buck shotgun run. Wow. Wow. So the... the uh... The Los Angeles Times account of the shooting said that even before making an attempt to call 911, you attempted to call your wife and that the shooter actually spoke with her. So, yes and no. Uh, The problem was 911 put me on hold. um, I was on hold for about 45 minutes. And then when they finally showed up, right, uh, it was nice they finally showed up, but... uh, so I was told I called my wife. Uh, and so when I called my wife, I don't recollect if I used, yeah, this would be crazy. I don't remember if it was the guy that shot me who used the phone to call my wife or if we used my cell phone calling my wife. I don't remember which phone we used. Yeah, uh, My phone was kind of falling apart because the round went through the speaker. But uh, uh, so, yeah, he. I talked to my wife on there. I couldn't breathe very well. And I put the guy on the phone with my wife, and uh, some colorful speech pursued, right? My wife was not being very nice about it. Uh, to keep this uh, PG, she basically said, uh, what'd you do to my husband? And don't make me come get you. And I'm trying to make that as, and I'm trying to make that as uh, nice and, but my wife was always my, uh, calm as it was, but my wife was always my, uh, my defender, my biggest defender. So she, uh, uh, she told the, the guy told her what he had done, um, and at this point, my wife and him were discussing. Uh, my wife's trying to call nine one one from the house, um, so she's on her cell phone with me, and then she's trying to use the house phone to call nine one one for me and trying to tell him where I am. Uh, my aunt and uncle were trying to chime in because they live, I'd say maybe, uh, maybe eight hundred feet from where I was at. Wow. Um, so they were just a few houses down, but on a, one of the, the main entrance points. So they were trying to find us. Um, and then that's yeah, kind of where it all pursued from there. My wife got a hold of the police. And then the guy that shot me, uh, his brother who owned the house, ran inside and got their house phone and called the sheriff's department directly. Since we were all on hold. You know, 911 was not a very uh, useful tool back then. Apparently. 
when you call 911 from a cell phone, it automatically went to the CHP. Jeez. So it sounds like you didn't perceive him to be a threat anymore. I At that point, no. The beginning when I got shot, uh, I had asked him, and I didn't know what had happened. It's just, it was uh, really... Um, I call it and it took the wind right out of me and it was really hot and uh I just asked what had happened he said you've been shot I'm going to shoot you again um I did hear him try to charge his weapon he couldn't get to charge again they got stuck and uh I went to the ground and I was trying to hide he had a tool set out there so I tried to hide I had words with him my words to him were very colorful also before we called my wife of course this is our interaction in the first 30 seconds, maybe. And uh, mine, where you come near me and I'll kill you. And uh, he had the gun, not me. But, you know, it's, it's uh, fight or fight. Well, I couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> so I was verbally trying to fight my way through it. Um, and then he finally came up and he said that uh, I told him I was a salesman. I remember thinking, no, no, people like salesmen. I'm a realtor. I, I remember thinking that very clearly. Um, and then he put his weapon down right in front of me. When he put his weapon down, it kind of put me at a, eased, a calmer uh, situation. I guess. And then the front door opened to the house, and that's when I first met the homeowner, which is his brother. He came out holding a, a uh, weapon on me, pointing another gun at me. And uh, they had their words talking about it. And... Uh, then they tried to convince me to say it was a drive-by. I told them, I'm not going to lie for you guys. Just either you get me help or you don't. I'm good with my God. And you'll have to be good with yours and your time. And that's well, that opened up a, uh, a whole nother dialogue for me. At that point, and this is this is before my wife was involved, right? So this is still, you're only in the first minute, half, two minutes of the, the ordeal. So first 30 seconds were kind of verbally aggressive. And then it started to calm down. And I turned it into a ministry. I started ministering to him about uh, Christ and about faith and about don't lie about this. You know, what's taken place, it happened. Accept it. Own it. And I talked to him about uh, faith, and he started talking to me a little bit more. And then that's about when we started trying to get into the, uh, trying to find out why our phones weren't ringing, why we weren't getting anybody, because I'm still on hold. All this conversation's going on, and I'm still on hold 911 on my cell phone. So uh, then the conversation kind of drifted over a little bit. We talked about trying to get me help, and they were trying to find help. And then it drifted back over to the ministry part, and then it drifted back into trying to find help. Uh, 45 minutes is a long time to discuss something. I bet. Uh, Especially in the kind of pain you had to be in. The, the pain, it definitely sucked. Wow. So newspaper stories vary in their depiction of the extent of your injuries, but they concur that you were admitted to the hospital in critical condition. Were you conscious most of the time? Yes. Um, the best of my knowledge, uh, I didn't lose consciousness until they uh, put me under. Mm. I was in the hospital. I kept asking for pain meds when we were in there. I said, help me make this pain stop. And they told me they couldn't do anything. They're waiting for the surgeon. They don't know the extent of my damage. Um, so finally, after we were at the hospital, I... I'm not sure how long it was over four hours. I know that 
Um, but uh, they finally, they, the doctor, he finally showed up. So the reason the doctor was late was that morning, my understanding is that doctor, when he got off of work, he was carjacked at a gas station really? at, at knife point. Yeah. Amazing. So he had to take a taxi from his home, which is out, I don't know, it's a Hollywood or Beverly Hills or whatever it was, but way out that way. He had to take a taxi to the hospital to get to me. Amazing. So ironically, I was shot at a house that I did not know was a marijuana grow house. And this doctor was carjacked by a drug addict that morning. So our lives kind of intertwined, right? And one of the discussions I've had with uh, my shooters sitting here and uh, later in court, I told them uh, that because you get to talk to your, your assailant, I told him, I said, I'm alive. You're alive. I said, uh, I almost died. And you almost died because you had some gangbanger after you, was my understanding. And your life was in threat. It was being threatened and it was at risk. So because you shot me, you were stuck in that area at that location and police everywhere. That bad guy couldn't hurt you. And the police saved me. And because you shot me, you brought me closer to my God and had me praying to my God. So in my, my mindset, that shooting saved both of us. Wow. Mine spiritually and you physically. And later to find out spiritually because he found God. Uh, I forgave him in court. So that that's probably a little bit further down the road with your questions. We can get down that path when it shows up. So it sounds as though they, they thought you were a threat because they were under some sort of threat from a gang? Yeah, I guess uh, there was a guy by the a guy by the name of Joshua Blount. I don't know much about this guy, but I guess he's a bad character. Um, he uh, had run-ins with the police department. He had run-ins with uh, my shooter, my shooter's family, um, only three days prior. Uh, my understanding there was a party a year prior um, that this. Joshua Blount showed up and uh, was kicked out. He was told to leave. You're not welcome. You're not invited. He tried to crash the party. He pulled the gun out at that time. And uh, my shooter and my shooter's brother tackled him to the ground with other people. I don't know the whole story. I wasn't there for that one. Um, but uh, he had he taken off, right? And the police got involved. And so a year later, on the anniversary of this party, that all the, the gun play and everything else pulled in, um, this this gangbanger decided he was going to start intimidating the Heishes. And the Heishes would be John Heish and James Heish. Those are, that's the shooter and his brother. Right. The shooter was John Heish and the brother is Jim, James Heish. Mm. And uh, so he started trying to intimidate. So for three days, uh, it seems they had been made a lot of phone calls to uh, the police department and the police department show up 45 minutes later, an hour and a half later. So they're calling saying there's a guy sitting in my driveway. He was trying to, he's threatening to kill me and the police wouldn't show up right away. Wow. Whether they stretched thin or whatever, because uh, that area was a uh, uh, sheriff's department and they are stretched thin for LA County sheriffs. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I, I have no idea. I don't even want to try to come to conclusions of why it took so long, but they weren't there 
very quickly. So these guys, at the point of me coming up, they were scared. Um, they were panicked. And when I knocked on the door, uh, John Heesh lived about three doors up the street on a cul-de-sac. So he saw me walking. And uh, James Heesh, when I walked to his door, I guess they had were on a phone call talking to each other. And uh, he says, guys, come to your door. So um, James Heesh, I heard door locks. I don't know anything. Dogs are barking, doors, locks, whatever. And that's kind of why I decided to leave. Um, but uh, John had already come down the street when he was talking to his brother saying, hey, you got somebody approaching. And so they were, uh, I guess they were trying to end their threat mm-hmm. finally. And they just thought I was this guy or I was some way linked to this person. Wow. So one of the ep- one of the accountings of the uh, of the incident in one of the papers, I'm not sure if it was the Times or what, um, said that your wife rushed to your side immediately upon hearing that you'd been shot, even knowing the shooter was still with you. Well, so she she tried to come over there. Yes, uh, by the time she got there, I'd already been moved. I'd already been taken. So my dad had shown up just before my wife did. Um, so my dad showed up on, uh, maybe it was the other way around. My wife showed up first, then my dad, I, I don't know. Anyways, my my wife showed up and I was already gone. I told my wife I had been um, uh, taken by helicopter to uh, uh, USC. Hmm. Or maybe it was UCLA, but to the hospital out there. And then uh, so my wife got in a car with my mother-in-law and they drove to the hospital. And my dad was already on his way to the hospital. My dad uh, got to the hospital. I don't know who got there first, but um, when my wife showed up trying to find me, the uh, the doctor and I guess their um, their minister at the hospital pulled my wife into the church at the hospital, into the prayer room. So and then closed the doors. So my wife thought they were going to tell her I was dead. Oh, I didn't make it. But they said, we're so sorry, man. We can't find your husband. He didn't come here. So then they found out that I was taken by ambulance instead of the helicopter to uh, Pomona, mm. Pomona Hospital. So when I was leaving the house, they, they rushed me down to a local elementary school off of Castle Rock Road, probably Castle Rock Elementary. And uh, the helicopter was there. I remember them pulling me out of the ambulance to the helicopter, trying to load me in the helicopter. I remember pulling me back out of the helicopter, um, covering me with a blanket to protect my face from the prop wash, and I'm trying to pull the blanket off of me. It was, I, I told the guy that was there, I'm not dead yet, don't cover me. And uh, so I remember the doctor getting under the blanket with me, said, no, no, we're just protecting you. They took me and loaded me back up into the ambulance and uh, drove me to Pomona Hospital. Mm-hmm. I remember that very vividly. That was a very bumpy ride. But uh, so my wife didn't know that at the time when she found out she rushed to the hospital. Um, I'm still in a hallway, a private room hallway. I've heard mixed um, recollections of it, right? But uh, they they put me in a space and uh, nurses were coming around checking me and that kind of stuff. But we were still waiting on the doctor. My wife got there. So she's talking to me. Um, I remember her yelling at the doc or the nurses saying, Hey, my husband's in pain, do something, you know? And, uh, they couldn't do anything until the doctor got there. Um, 
And then I remember when the doctor finally got there, the nurse came to me and said, okay, uh, we're going to be moving you into surgery and I'm going to give you something to help the pain. My words, it's about damn time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next thing I know, I woke up in a full glass room a couple days later. Uh, I can't tell you exactly. My wife tells me it was a couple of days, so I don't really know all the details. Of course, I was out cold. They had just done major surgery to save my life. And uh, that was the next thing I remember. So my wife had shown up. My dad was there. Um, I remember telling my wife and my dad, just don't leave me alone. So my wife had to get back to our new twins, who were six months old at the time. By the time we had the twins who were six months old, Hunter at the time was, well, if they're six months old, Hunter must have been probably four, probably three or four, mm -hmm. somewhere in that area. So she had to get back to them. And then my daughter, Brianna, was there, and she would have been a year older than Hunter. Uh, so she was just trying to get back to the kids you know, at the house to make sure they were okay because everybody's in a panic. So my dad, I told my dad, please don't leave me. And then I fell asleep, and I guess I was kind of in and out. I don't remember all of it. I was in and out for a couple of days. But every time I opened my eyes, either my dad or my wife were right there by me. I do wow. remember that very vividly. She sounds they, like an incredible woman. My wife's incredible. Absolutely. She's amazing. So tell us about her. How did you meet her? So I met my wife in 2000. Uh, I was I just come back home, back to living in California. I've been living a number of places. Um, and a buddy of mine, which was uh, Dan Rich, Danny Rich, uh, he lived in Chino at the time. And uh, I came back into town to go visit him. And my wife showed up with her, one of her girlfriends, which was Heather. And, uh, you know, we, we talked for, I don't know, a few minutes. And then they ran off to go do what they were going to do real quick, get back in the car or whatever. And uh, I looked at Danny and I asked him, I said, that's your girlfriend? Danny's answer, no. Uh, <laughs> has she ever been your girlfriend? <laughs> no. Is it something you're trying to make your girlfriend? His answer, <laughs> no. He asked, why all the questions? I said, because that's my wife. She just doesn't know it yet. Oh, that's so good. And so that was that was the first couple minutes I knew Bobby. I, I, I knew. Yeah, that's wonderful. So what was your recovery like? Um, that was rough. Uh, the physical recovery is one thing. It was the mental anguish. That's probably, I think, the hardest thing to recover from. We can, your body heals. Your brain, um, your, it doesn't heal as fast. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think the, 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 the brain fully heals anything. I think you're always, it, it's always there. If you have any kind of trauma, you're always going to deal with that trauma. It doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. You live your life accordingly. Um, everybody talks about, uh, it's your uh, instinct, right? Your natural instinct, right? To do something. And people say, well, it's just natural. You're born to know how to breathe. No, you learn to breathe. But once you learn to breathe, your body knows what it doesn't want. So your instinct in your brain tells you, you need to breathe. Right, everything's learned. So uh, for me, I still deal with it. Um, but now getting shot kind of brought a lot of other stuff to light. So everywhere I go, I'm very cautious. I'm very alert. Uh, 
I don't get comfortable. Uh, not until I get back home behind my doors. Then I can kind of rest. So the recovery for me was um, the physical, okay, that, that hurt, yes. They put me on uh, all kinds of pain meds that I didn't want to be on. So I, I took myself off a lot of them. I started weaning myself off. Um, they uh, had me do a lot of different scans and tests to make sure the bullets weren't moving around. I had to do more surgeries, pull one of the bullets out of my, my thigh, one out of my hip, and one out of my shoulder. I still have uh, two fragments on my side that didn't come out. Wow. Uh, just at this point, the damage to take those out isn't worth it. So they're staying there. They're, they, they annoy, but it's not that bad. I've had sounds like what you're describing is post-traumatic stress. Yes, very much so. So is there any help for you for that too? Uh, doctors will tell you, psychiatrists will tell you, and I'm not either one, but, uh, you know, here, take this medication for your anxiety, take this medication for your stress, mm -hmm. take this medication to calm your nerves, right? I found those medications cause more harm than good. Yes. So far in my world, I haven't been, had a very good response to them for a temporary. Yes. Everything has its place. Right. Um, so the initial was to get me away from my dark place. Right. Yes. The fear. And I think the initial is just to kind of calm you down so that people can talk to you and you can talk to them. You can work through it. And it's important. So I'm not downplaying medication by any means, but, uh, I think you have to work it. If you yes. want the medication to help, you can't just take the pills and think, oh, this is going to solve it. You have to take the medication and work the process. The idea is to talk to other people. The idea is to calm you down enough to be able to talk and listen and communicate with others. For me, I found my communication and I found my um, my healing powers within my faith. Mm -hmm. uh, I just prayed. I, I, I talked with a pastor. Um, I would talk to my friends of like-minded belief systems, right? Um, I believe wholeheartedly that uh, Christ is the reason I'm here. I believe wholeheartedly Christ visited me on that doorstep that night. Um, I remember having an internal conversation with Christ when I was on that doorstep. Um, I remember the shooting shooter telling me, I hope you're going to be okay. I think you'll be okay. I said, I know I will be. And uh, I told him, uh, I, I talked about it before. I told him, God's right here. He's already told me. I'm fine. I'll be fine. You, on the other hand, you need to rethink. And so, like I said, I went back and forth to ministering to this guy on the doorstep. So in my healing process, I found my faith to be the strongest one. Excellent. So did you attend the court hearings for the man who shot you? They wouldn't let me sit in on the court hearing. Uh, I was there. I was in the in the courtroom, but they wouldn't let me uh, attend and watch the whole trial coming down. They wanted to uh, keep my um, testimony clean and make sure I wasn't uh, swayed by anything else anybody else was saying. Oh yeah. Uh, they came to me and they told me at one point they wanted me to. Uh, they're going to put me on the witness stand, right? Which is. I'm the victim, right? They're going to put me on the witness stand. And, uh, but I wasn't allowed to mention my military service. They said that would uh, sway the courtroom or sway the jury because at the time there was a big 
big patriotic move. He had just had 9-11 four years prior. Yes. Five years prior. So this is a big, big issue, right? So they didn't want me talking about that. We were all these, these wars. They didn't want me bringing it up. And I told the, the, the uh, prosecutor and I told the uh, uh, defense, I said, as long as you guys don't ask me a question of how I know that nobody gave me a warning, don't walk me down that path, then yes. I won't mention it. But if you ask me how I know something happened, I'm going to bring my service involved because my training is really what kept me alive. Hmm. So they, they listened and kind of went down that path. So I wasn't allowed to speak. I wasn't allowed or I wasn't allowed to sit in the courtroom. I wasn't allowed to listen to stories. Um, anybody else's recount of the, uh, uh, the day, right? Um, my uncle who lived on the street, he was there with me every day. Um, my wife was in there, but no, I wasn't allowed to sit in the courtroom. That's had to be hard. Yeah, that, that kind of sucked. Um, I watched this guy walk in right by me with the uh, law enforcement, but uh, I wasn't allowed to go in there and say anything. I'm sure it's my protection and theirs and the uh, protection of the trial itself. Yeah. But you, you were able to make a statement to the court and the defendant before sentencing, right? Yes. And what did you say? Well, I, uh, I, I, I just walked, I told the, the court, I told the judge, uh, I want to talk to him first, my assailant first. Mm-hmm. And I looked at my assailant and I told him, uh, my understanding is you've tried to kill yourself twice in jail. Don't be stupid. And that's when I told him, you and I both, we were saved that day. And that's when I talked about in front of the court. I said, I was saved with faith and you were saved because I was shot. I'm alive. Get past it. Let it go. Forgive yourself. Let it go, man. It's done. I forgive you. You need to forgive you. Wow. God forgives you. You need to forgive you. And that was kind of, that That was the conversation I had with him at the court. And then I looked at the judge and I said, uh, please keep in mind putting somebody in prison for something like this, while it's a very severe uh, attack, I get that, but it was truly an accident. It was truly a misrepresentation of what he wanted. He was in fear. The guy has no history. Um, the judge did ask me how I knew that, and I kind of had to keep some of that to myself. I said, but uh, he had no history, no, never in trouble. His brother is a knucklehead, but this man is not. Mm-hmm. I said, so send him to prison for 17 years, which was that they were talking about. All you can do is make a career criminal out of an otherwise stupid decision. And I asked the judge for leniency on him. I said, just keep that in mind. So uh, after the judge dried his eyes and everybody in the courtroom finally starts to breathe again, I guess it kind of caught a lot of people off guard. Um, he called a recess and uh, went back in and he sentenced uh, John to, I believe it was seven years or eight years probation and one year um, time served. Wow. With a 12-year sentence looming over his head if he messed up at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it... Uh, you know, he had his probation officer to talk to, and he had to go down those paths. Um, and I actually believe that that was the right way to go. And yeah. as a man, I wanted retribution. As a man, I wanted revenge. Mm-hmm. As a man, I wanted to hurt him back the way he hurt me and worse. But as a Christian, I can't do that. As a Christian, I listen to God. 
I listen to my Lord. And I listen to those um, uh, voices in my head that I, I had to forgive them. I had to get past it. And if I didn't get past it, it was going to kill me quicker than those bullets were. As amazing as your own forgiveness of your shooter is, to me it's equally amazing that your wife seems to have forgiven him as well. Not at first. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in court and I said this, my wife, <laughs> yeah, her, her words were kind of on the lines of, what the, you know, she was very confused. Uh, we had talked about it, but I don't think she thought I was going to go through with it. So she was confused, and then her and I talked more and more and more about this. And she eventually came around to the point where I even invited this guy to my home. Really? And we had a barbecue, and I wanted time to talk to him. I still feel that ministry is important. I feel fellowship is important. I feel it's not my job to judge anybody. It's my job to love everybody. It's in the Bible. So I love everybody. I don't hate anybody. There's people I may not like, but usually it's a situation I don't like. And I just steer clear if I don't feel safe. But this guy coming to my home eventually, it wasn't right away. I promise it's not like right out of court. No, no, no. It was a couple years down the road. But mm -hmm. um, it was important. That's, that was my closure. That was a way for me to close this up. Um, for him, it was about the last time we talked. He went uh, he went dark after that. He didn't want to talk to me or anybody else. His dad contacted me and said it's too hard for him. Uh, I sent the guy a message and his dad a message. I said, uh, you think it's too hard for you? I said, don't be selfish. It's for everybody. We're all here together. This is our path that we all need to be on. I've talked to his dad a few times, about once a year. His dad and I will message back and forth or speak real quick on, on John and how he's doing. Um, I know he's running his dad's company now. I know uh, he's getting ready, or last year he was getting ready to get married before the pandemic hit. Um, so he claimed his life up. I'm, I'm, I'm happy it went that direction. I'm happy I listened to God tell me to forgive, and I'm happy my wife supported me through all this. Um. I've spoke at many functions on this, um, given my testimony. Uh, I, I do practice what I preach, right? I, I forgive and I'll go out there and I'll talk to other people and I explain it. I think the power of forgiveness is the power of healing. You can't heal if you can't, you can't heal if you don't forgive. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. Is that the core lesson that you learned about forgiveness? It is. Are there other lessons that go along with that too about forgiveness from your perspective? Growth. Um, well, you can't heal, but you also can't grow. Mm -hmm. if, if you hang on to hatred or uh, anxieties, then you, you're going to rob yourself of an opportunity to grow in life. You have to forgive to move forward. Otherwise, you're stuck. It's like being stuck in a mud pit. If you don't yeah. put that car back in reverse, try to get out of that pit, you're going to keep spinning your wheels. You're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So how has all this affected your uh, your children? You've been through a lot together. My kids, um, they're good kids. They, uh, they're very, 
very um, loving children. Uh, they're helpful. Uh, they like to help people. It's one of their favorite things, I believe, to do. We can be getting ready to go anywhere in the world, and if something's happening and they think they can help somebody, they'll drop everything to go help that person. And to that accord, they'll drop anything to go help a dog or a cat. Lord knows I had plenty of them land in my garage that I'd take care of and we'd go find a home for them. <laughs> well, actually, I saw a poster of a car show for a benefit for a local Boy Scout troop with your name on it as the organizer. Yep. So are you in, involved uh, in volunteering with the Boy Scouts? I was. Uh, when my kids were younger, my boys were younger, I was very much so. So that poster you saw, that was uh, Hunter, my oldest son. He was with uh, Troop 309, and I was very involved trying to help uh, get that car show off the ground. The other gentleman had decided, okay, I've already done enough of these, and he wanted to step down. I said, well, let's try to keep this going a little bit. So I kept it going another year. I think we it went for a couple more years. I was part of it uh, one more year. Um, but it was it is one of those things I like to give and help, and it's fun. I do like the scouts. I was also a Cub Master over at uh, 205 for a year. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to get my youngest son through uh, Cub Scouts into Boy Scouts. So you're still active in any volunteering? Uh, right now, no. Not uh -huh. much. And not as far as Scouts are concerned. Um, I've done plenty of volunteering, but this last year, no. Uh, at work, I am part of like a veterans uh, uh, group. So we do try to uh, reach out and help the community through my work, my employer. Um, but as far as on a on a, just a personal me doing something? No, I'm usually involved with a group now. Yeah, yeah. So what's become of your dreams and plans for the future? Uh, continue to grow. For me, that's about where it is. Um, I, I'm going I'm to need to go back to school. Uh, I'm being pushed pretty hard, so I'm probably going to try to write a new book. Not a new, write a book. Um, just kind of going around this exact process forgiveness and uh how all these things kind of have affected me and how it affected my wife how it affected each one of my kids um and just our outlook on life right uh but that's what i wanted to write this book for i want it to be more of a a good feel book and not a sympathy book so uh, i I'm, i've written it deleted it written it and deleted it a few times, so I didn't like it. But uh, I can't say I wrote the whole thing, but I, mean, I write like maybe a chapter of it. I go, yeah, I don't like how this looks. We'll throw it away, we'll try something else. Problem is when you do it that way, you don't keep your creative energies flowing. What I should have done is just kept writing and writing and adding to it and then read later and delete stuff. But no, I deleted the whole thing, threw it out in the trash can. And now like you're talking about my headset. Yeah, <laughs> I got rid of it. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you've you've done a lot of incredible work on yourself and and your family, and I mean, it's truly amazing to me the what what I'm learning from you about forgiveness and the connection that you had. Actually, even I had no idea about the immediate aftermath of when you were shot and what that was like and what you went through and the things that you spoke about with the person that shot you. Uh, it is an amazing story, and I hope you do get your book out. You, and, and I will. I mean, there's there's so many other things that have taken place. I mean, people aren't lost. Um, the people that came together to help my family when I got shot was amazing. 
um, my mother-in-law, my brother-in-law had started a GoFundMe account. Um, and this is back in 05 before I even knew what GoFundMe was. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and then, uh, it was channel seven news. It was all the stations. They had put it on the news channel about all this. People would start donating money. Uh, my wife, uh, was by police escort to come see me at the hospital because, you know, the situation when I was, after I got shot, this, you're talking, this is only a weekend of all this week and a half in. And, uh, the police officer said, there's a gentleman or the security officer. There's a gentleman downstairs that wants to see you. We'll escort you if you want to go see him. And my wife didn't know what to expect. She goes, okay. And I guess the guy just, he had something or he wanted to tell her something. So she goes down She and she explains it as a big burly Hills angel kind of guy. <laughs> um, leather jacket and biker and that kind of stuff and uh spooky looking guy and uh she comes up and he says are you bobby hinks are you eric's wife and she says yes well we put something together for you and had my wife and him below and my wife says well, well who is this from he goes doesn't matter this is faith is to help your family and he walked away and he wouldn't he, he i guess he moved pretty quick so my wife couldn't catch him enough. He got, he got out of there quickly. Uh, he didn't want recognition, but that just shows not everybody's in it to go, Hey, look at me, look at me. Some people yeah. just want people. Yeah. And it kind of renewed my faith in humanity. Um, the, the amount of people that re- reached out to me, the amount of people that reached out to my wife, the amount of people that, uh, uh offered to help my kids. Um, it amazes me. And people do step up and we see all these things in the news. Even now, and it's amazing how people still step up. We're looking at, look at this pandemic we're going through now. How many people are stepping up to help people that are losing loved ones during this pandemic? They're trying to help. Yeah. And to me, I just, I find that remarkable. People are still awesome. They're not lost yet. Wow. Well, thank you so much for your, uh, for your time and, and for telling us your story. You're, you're, uh, I mean, you've given me a lot of inspiration, and I wish you and your family all the joy and health life can offer. I hope you have just a wonderful, wonderful future ahead of you. Well, thank you. I hope the same for you. Thank you. I like this uh, podcast. This is good. Thank you so much, Eric. I came away from this conversation feeling that whatever reluctance Eric Hanks has to stand in the spotlight, it's no match for his convictions, his commitment to his family and his faith. Again, we thank Eric for sharing his story and we wish all the best for him, his wife and children. Thank you for joining us here on Unspoken Unsung. If you're enjoying the podcast, we hope you'll subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Conversair, and give us a good rating and review. The show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Unspoken Unsung was recorded at the Conversair studio, Carlsbad, California. Martin Danner engineered the recording, 
Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, Carlsbad, California. 